Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. And I'm Josh. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights today, Isaiah 40 to 49. And we're really excited today to welcome Josh Sears, our friend and colleague. Thank you for joining us. Josh has spent years of his life studying the Hebrew Bible, and he has a lot of his research focused, actually, in Isaiah, and I think it's safe to say specifically in some of these chapters is kind of some of the crux of your work. Is that right? They're some of the best chapters out there, so <laughs> 40 through 49. So, how would you, Josh, with, with your view of what we're going to be covering today, how would you overview this for people? What, what, what can we look forward to in chapters 40 through 49 at a very high, high overview level? That's a great question, and there's so many things you can get out of it, partly because these prophecies, like you've seen earlier with Isaiah, can apply in different stages, in different settings, in different points in history. So to set the stage for these chapters, I thought I'd share um, a quotation that I really love from President Dallin H. Oaks. And I love how, a good, as a good scholar of ancient things, you have an old copy of the Ensign. Yes. Hard copy. January 1995 from my grandparents right here. I mean, who needs this digital is, resources? This you get is the, great. The print copy. And he, he talks about this fact that prophecy can have multiple fulfillments, multiple meanings, and you don't want to restrict yourself to just one narrow meaning. And so he says this about the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah contains numerous prophecies that seem to have multiple fulfillments. One seems to involve the people of Isaiah's day or the circumstances of the next generation. Another meaning, often symbolic, seems to refer to events in the meridian of time when Jerusalem was destroyed and her people scattered after the crucifixion of the Son of God. Still another meaning or fulfillment of the same prophecy seems to relate to the events attending the second coming of the Savior. So he gives kind of three example settings there to where a prophecy can have a fulfillment in one or two or even sometimes all three of those. And I don't think that's an exhaustive list. For example, Nephi will apply prophecies to events going on with the Nephites um, at different points of their history. But for Latter-day Saints, these are probably the three most common settings that are most helpful to interpret this. So for today's chapters, I want to focus back in on what he said about the first kind of application. He said, one application of these prophecies seems to involve the people of Isaiah's day or the circumstances of the next generation. So to break that down a little bit, if you... He's basically saying, you know, these have an application in ancient Israel, right, the time of the Bible. And so he says, Isaiah's day or the circumstances of the next generation. And if you're looking at Isaiah in its kind of ancient context there, it does kind of divide into two major periods. You've got Isaiah's lifetime, which is the late 700s BC. Yeah, can we just say, again, we've mentioned this roughly, 740 down to 701 exactly. BC. And then what President Oaks is calling the circumstances of the next generation is jumping forward to the middle of the 500s BC, say like 540, something like that. So you have a little bit of a gap there where you have lots of detailed description of the things going on here when Isaiah is alive, and then there's a time jump, and then all of a sudden there's lots of detailed descriptions of stuff going on about 200 years later right here. And I think that's what President Oaks is referring to as the next generation right here. And so to explain how the time jump works, um, I know some, some people don't <laughs> uh, love history or it's hard to keep all everything straight, so this might help a little bit. So Isaiah is alive about right here. 
What's going on right here is you've got the, the Jews are exiled in Babylon. And so to help make sense of where we are here, right in between these two periods is where the Book of Mormon opens. So a lot of us are more familiar with that. You remember at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, Lehi is prophesying to Jerusalem saying, you guys better repent or Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the inhabitants carried away captive into Babylon. So Lehi is right in between right here, warning that this stuff will happen. And so then later in the book of Isaiah, it's already an accomplished fact. It has happened. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple's in ruins. The people are in exile in Babylon. And the point of the book of Isaiah where we make the time jump is right here at Isaiah chapter 40. So most of chapters 139 are dealing with some of this stuff. I'm simplifying because there are certainly chapters that talk about things far in the future. But then starting in chapter 40 is where we make the time jump and most of the stuff is now dealing directly with this stuff right here in the middle of the 500s BC. So Lehi is right in between here. And as we pick up here in chapter 40, we've got these people. And that helps us understand some of these messages because these people have just had a rough, rough time. Their temple's been destroyed. Their, their cities have been leveled. They've been moved into captivity. They've been there for a, a generation or two now. And that is just rough. They have they've been through so much trauma. They've suffered. They're wondering if God has forsaken them and abandoned them and if they'll ever things will ever be right again. And that's where these messages come in to offer a lot of hope and comfort to these people. It's beautiful. In fact, you mentioned the word comfort. If you go back to chapter 40, verse 1, that opens up our block of scriptures today, you'll notice the very first line, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. They are in need of comfort. They're in this exiled condition. They've lost their city, their, their temple, their kingdom, and they feel like all is lost. And here's the Lord saying, comfort ye. For those of you who are familiar with Handel's Messiah, there's the, the first song in that whole oratorio is just an instrumental number, and then the first song with words, well, the entire Messiah oratorio begins with Isaiah 40, verse 1, the first words you hear in that incredible moving work is, comfort ye, a solo voice singing, comfort ye, my people. And uh, what a great message to introduce that work called the Messiah, and what a great message to introduce our block of scripture today, that we can take great comfort. Look at verse 2. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, and that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She's been punished. She's received justice, a double portion, but now the, the Lord is going to, to turn the tide for them. Yeah. And that message of comfort really just continues throughout all these chapters. There's occasional references to how they blew it <laughs> and the things they did in the past, but they're only brief, and then it quickly pivots to the Lord saying, but now, you know, that's over. That time is past. Forget about it. I've forgotten about it, and now I'm going to help you move forward. That is the dominant theme kind of running through all of these chapters right here. Which, by the way, Josh, that right there, what you just said, to me, is the major takeaway of chapter 40 through 49, and it isn't just about those people back then in Babylon. It's about you, and it's about me and us, that there are times when we find ourselves in exile, when we find ourselves cut off, it seems, 
from all of the good things that, that we used to have, and yet the Lord is restoring us and giving us things that, quite frankly, we don't deserve. We didn't earn them, but he's still stretching out this arm of mercy and, and giving us this comfort, and I, I love that. As you go through here, let's not get so excited about the history that you forget that that's a nice symbol for God's relationship with you today in your uh, exiles, whatever your Babylon may, may look like today. And I think that potential to see yourself in this as an individual is built right into the text because the text usually addresses, O Israel, O Jacob, and you can tell he's speaking to these group of people, but then he'll very often address them as if they are an individual right in there. Even the names Jacob and Israel were individual people at one time, or he'll call them my servant or my messenger, other kind of things. So it often bounced back and forth between addressing them as a group versus an individual, and I think it's an, kind of an open invitation to see how God works with them as a group is the same way that he works with us on an individual level. So when he's willing to forgive them and help them move forward as a group, that very much tells us that on an individual level he's just as willing to do the same thing. I love verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, we immediately will think about John the Baptist, which is a great reference, but also if you think about the building of roads in the ancient world, uh, there were roads, but they were not the kind of roads you might be familiar with today in our society, and often they took an enormous amount of resources to maintain. Often the local people were expected to maintain it, not even the king of the empire. So what I see going on here is that God himself is coming down and he is going to provide that highway for these people out of Babylon back into Jerusalem. Now, if we take it into our own lives, God will smooth the way for us. Well, there's going to be some bumps along the way. There's still a lot of effort involved in our path back to God's heavenly home, symbolized by Jerusalem. But he does prepare the way. He sends people who will smooth the path for us, messengers who will guide us along the way, and that provides our access into his heavenly abode where there is total and enduring comfort, which is the theme we have going on here. What are some of the things that you see in these passages that entice you? Yeah, I love that image of the way right there. It reminds me, of course, of Nephi, right? The Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men, save he prepares a way yeah, for them. That's a great insight. And that's, again, this is one of those things where you can start with the physical application in its ancient context and jump to a, a personal application for us now, right? Like you said, he prepares a way for us. Uh, if you continue on to verse 4, the image continues, right? Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. So it seems like he is making it possible for them. The image here is, you know, they've, they're in Babylon, they're stuck, but now they're going to get freed, they're going to be able to go home, and he's going to remove those impossible obstacles that might otherwise be in their way, like mountains that are kind of blocking the path. And like you said, there's still some effort required. They have to make the journey. They have to decide to go. They have to make the steps to go there. But he's going to prepare it ahead of them so that it is possible to get there in the end with his help. And I think that's a wonderful image that we can take away. I love how Isaiah concludes this particular thought. In verse 8, he says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we begin in verse 1 with comfort, and then we get to this point where Isaiah is reminding us, God's word you can trust always. So, 
in every aspect of the gospel, God invites us to act, and we have to trust him. That's what we see. These people are being invited to trust God, and therefore they have to act to get onto that highway back into Jerusalem or back into his kingdom. So it's not like God just shows up with an Uber and he just drives you there and all you have to do is just sit and you get, luckily you just get saved. So you have to prove your trust by choosing to act on what he's asked you to do. That was the whole reason we fought in the pre-mortal life was to have the opportunity to exercise our agency. And that agency is empowered when we trust God. And I see this powerful message of trust here in verse eight. The other great thing is he doesn't just say, okay, the path is prepared, get on it and good luck see you when you get there. There's this motif of preparing this road in the wilderness continues several places. And in other places, he adds that he's going to provide opportunities for nourishment and strength along the way. So for example, chapter 41, verse 18, I will open up rivers and high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land springs of water. Or... Uh, 43.19, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And this this image of providing water for them and sustenance along the way keeps popping up too, saying, you know, I'm not going to just ditch you on this journey. I will provide opportunities for rest, for refreshment along the way. He's going to be with us every step. This builds upon an idea we've mentioned other times that God is the God of the whole world, but he's also the God of the wilderness. And often when he's inviting his people to join with him, He takes them out of cities and out of civilization where everything's provided. You have your water and your food and you have security out in the wilderness. In the wilderness, you are fully dependent upon God. You need him for water and food. Think about the Israelites. They're taken out of Egypt, the greatest civilization at the time, where everything's provided for. God takes them out in the wilderness and they complain. Like, we wish we were back in Egypt where there was all sorts of lettuce and cabbage and leeks and all sorts of water based plants. And God gives them water. He gives them food. We see the same thing going on here, that God is a God of the wilderness. These people are leaving this massive civilization called Babylon. They're going to have to travel to the wilderness to get back to their sacred city, Jerusalem. And in our own lives, God asks us at times to exercise faith in him by walking away from some of the comforts we may have in life to show our trust in him that we will follow whatever he's asked us to do. And it is a challenge we face in our modern world when so many of our physical needs have been taken care of. Some people might say, well, I don't need God anymore. I got running water. I don't need to create rivers of water for me. I got food that just shows up on delivery. So why do I need a God who can, who can bring forth the harvest? So God gives us opportunities to realize we need him. And if we work at it, we will see his hand everywhere in our lives and not be distracted by all the good that he's already provided that makes life simpler. It's beautiful. And if you look at verse 9, this injunction to us, O Zion, that bring us good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. Again, it's not God picking you up and dropping you off there. It's get up. He's He's opened the way for you. And by the way, I, I, I love this play on the word way because it's in, in John 14 at that Last Supper event when his apostles are asking him some questions about how can we know where we're supposed to go and what we're supposed to do, and Jesus' response in verse 6 is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I love this idea of it's not as if our purpose is 
to go from Babylonian exile to the Jerusalem return to the temple and there we find God, the fact is every step of the way He's right there. we're with Christ because he is the way. We're not going anywhere that matters without him. So it's not this, it's all in the destination. If I can just graduate or if I can just get that job or if I can just have that marriage or that child or whatever the, the, the target destination may be, then I'll be with the Lord and I'll feel his presence. That's not the message from Isaiah. And, and from scriptures that then tie in here, it's we are, he is with us every step of the way. Look what it says in verse 10, behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. There is nobody you would rather be walking this path with than him. He's, he's got this strong arm, this mighty hand, but he's also got the ability to reward and, and bless and comfort, and then probably, I could be wrong, but in my mind at least, some of the sweetest words in the entire Old Testament are right here in verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. There have been so many times when I've gotten to a point in my life where I feel exhausted, either physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, and I feel like I can't do it anymore. I can't be who, who everybody expects me to be or who I expect me to be. And the Lord has these little ways, and it's usually so subtle that if you're not watching for it, you miss it, where he, he leaves his fingerprints on us. He, he, he provides exactly what verse 11 is talking about, and it's, it's such a powerful, comforting, reassuring, traveling companion to have with you on this covenant path. And it can be scary when you feel like God isn't there or that he's not responding or that he's abandoning you, which is sometimes how these people felt. And you, you get quotes, snippets from the people in these chapters that express those sentiments. So, for example, in 49... 14, Zion says, the Lord hath forsaken me and my Lord hath forgotten me. And then uh, back in chapter 40, verse 27, the people complain, my way, my path forward is hid from the Lord and my judgment is passed over from my God, meaning like my cause is ignored. He's just ignoring me. He's not seeing what's going on here. And then the response is this, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Of course, our uh, word of wisdom quotes from those lines there, but here it's, I don't think it's just physical endurance that we're talking about, it's these people that feel like they're abandoned, and it says you've got to wait upon the Lord, and what an important principle there that as you wait on the Lord, he'll give you that strength that you need to overcome things. Which, by the way, on that particular concept, I remember Elder Bruce 
uh, C. Hafen many years ago in a, in a fireside that he gave up at the Logan Institute. He shared this, this particular verse, and he said, you know, it's interesting for his family, he said, there are two ways you can interpret wait upon the Lord. One is to sit there with your arms folded and tapping your feet, checking your watch, waiting for the Lord to come, and he said the one that his family and, – and it's not tied into the Hebrew under underlaying this verse, I get that, but the concept in English is beautiful. He said they choose to interpret it the second way, which is like a waiter in a restaurant, they that wait upon the Lord, they that go to the Lord and say, what would thou have me do next? How can I serve thee? What can I do to, to prepare your table for your coming and, and, and for, for whatever it is that you want? That's a beautiful concept. If any of you are struggling right now with feeling like you're not getting the blessings that, that you really seek, what a difference to shift from that first – from the, the traditional interpretation of wait with hope for the Lord to come and, and, and fix the problems to the second and get up and say, Lord, what can I do? Where can I go? How can I serve? Um, it's a powerful, powerful uh, likening or an application of this principle here in verse 31. Now, now, before we continue moving forward into 41 and on down the line into 49, I think we need to go back actually and pick up one little concept here that Isaiah is going to, to come back to again and again and again in a variety of ways, and it's basically the grandeur of God and the nothingness of mankind in comparison. It's not worthless, it's just this comparison. He's setting this, this huge gap difference between the two. Look at verse 12. He starts asking these, these rhetorical yet very instructive questions. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Hey, Isaiah's asking the question, who's done that? And the implication is definitely not anyone down here, right? Nobody on the earth has done that, but God has done that. Verse 13, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Who on earth has shared anything that has caused God on high to say, hmm, that's fascinating, I had never thought about that before. He, he's being he, – he's using some, some uh, irony here in his writing, there's, there's some tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, technique going on, but it's powerful. And then he, he keeps going down, look at verse 18, to whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will ye compare unto him? What could you possibly build, or, or how could you possibly portray somebody who is so grand and glorious as God compared to us, and his point is, you can't. So, you should wait on him, you should trust him, you should put your love and your hope and your faith in him, not in any of this. And that theme has come up in the first 39 chapters, and it's going to keep coming up in, in between here and chapter 66 as well. And that actually leads into another theme that has developed a lot in specifically chapters 40 through 48 which is right here, 
which is the kind of absurdity of idolatry, idol worship. You know, that's part of what got Israel into trouble in the first place <laughs> and got them into exile. And he gives a repeated warning here that, you know, things would have gone differently had you learned to trust me rather than these idols and the other kinds of things they were doing. So, for example, skipping here, here chapter 48, verse 18, he says, Oh, that thou hast hearkened to my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. And he's trying to tell them here, you know, I, I'm preparing the way, you're going to get out of troubles here, but you've got to get rid of the things that are holding you back. You've got to let go of these things that are keeping you of not trusting in me. So in chapter 41, um, for example, starting around verse 21, he's got this uh, extended discussion about how idols, um, <laughs> it's no good trusting in those. Um, and he does this in several other places. This just keeps popping up in these chap chapters. And what he keeps emphasizing is that idols uh, could not, cannot predict what's going to happen. They did not tell that Israel was going to go into exile, but the Lord did. Idols did not predict that Babylon's going to fall and the people will be set free, but the Lord did. And he keeps contrasting that to let them know, why would you, if these, if these dumb idols could not predict any of this in the past, what hope have you them in the future right there? Um, and he, the Lord actually challenges the idols, like in verse 22, let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us for things to come. He's challenging the idols. Do something here to show that you actually have any power to save. Um, and I think this is a really important principle. Of course, today people aren't literally bowing down to actual graven images, usually in our modern kind of Christian context that we have but there's so often the case where we turn to things um, that are not as helpful as God would be to try to get answers like they were doing for these idols. Um, I remember Elder Ballard gave, uh, gave a talk to uh, CES instructors, and he told us, you know, remind your students that James did not say, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of Google. <laughs> but how many people do that where we have not just uh, a trivia question, which the internet is great for, but they have deep spiritual questions and we're going to the internet for answers. Um, I find over and over that that's a dead end. The internet is not going to be as helpful as fasting, as prayer, as listening to the Lord's prophets, seeking him in the scriptures. Um, and if we want to make a modern application from this idolatry here, I think very much the message is you've got to turn to the living God for answers and directions with what to do for your life. There's all sorts of other sources that promise to give you information and that promise to give you direction, but ultimately they're not going to pull through. And what Israel needs to do is learn to trust in the living God. Isn't that fascinating that you can take something like, like our cell phones or our computers, our technology, that are crafted by men and women, and, and it's, it's ingenious what they've come up with. And so you look at a cell phone, you look at a, at a computer, and it's not inherently evil, nor is it inherently good. It's very, it's a tool. It's a very powerful tool that can be used in a variety of ways that can be used in neutral ways. Using it that way isn't going to help you and it's not going to hurt you. And then there are ways you can use some of these idols that we've built, and I'm just using technology and cell phones and computers as one example of many. You could plug in position, money, power, education and learning, um, anything that would separate us, and, and you could 
then worship that as your God and, and rely on that to see you through rather than turning heavenward. But you'll notice that any one of those things, they're all neutral at the beginning, they can very quickly be turned to evil purposes or they can be turned to righteous purposes for good or for evil. So I love this, that if you use these things appropriately, they don't become idols to you, they become actually tools in your hand to build up the kingdom of God to help gather Israel on both sides of the veil. I'm convinced the technologies, they were inspired by God, but we've got to be sure to use them the way the Lord intended. Just like the chisels that were used to carve those idols in, in Isaiah's day, that's a great technology. I think it was inspired by God. They probably used chisels to rebuild the temple. Exactly. So just maybe look at the things in your life around you that are tools and figure out how to increasingly use them to love God, turn heavenward, and to love your neighbor as yourself more, more powerfully. You might wake up in the morning, for example, and ask yourself, what's the first thing you do in the morning to orient your day? Do you immediately go to your knees and pray and let Heavenly Father tell you what are my priorities today, what should be on my mind? Or do you immediately pull up your phone, check all the notifications, the social media, all the pings, everything you've, that's accumulated over the night, and let that tell you what you should be concerned about and what should be weighing on your mind throughout the day? I think that's a big difference, and none of us would think that would be so ridiculous as to bow down and worship an idol, but I think little things like that just provide the, that orientation of where are we looking for answers and direction can be, have a powerful effect in how the day goes. Yeah, so powerful. You can picture uh, the Lord Jesus Christ during his ministry. He, he often, in the, in the gospel narrative, he's often taking time to go up into the mountain or to be alone with God, to get some of that quiet time, to get his direction from the Lord. And this example of at the beginning of your day, well, at the beginning of his ministry, after his baptism, where did he go? He went out into the wilderness. He didn't go into the public square to find out what all of the, the, the public opinion was of the day and to figure out the social implications of, of his gospel teaching and, and what that would do. He went first to get his connection with God uh, very clearly established in those 40 days of fasting in the wilderness in Matthew 4, if we use the Joseph Smith translation in the footnote there. So as we jump into chapter 42, you'll, you'll notice Isaiah does this frequently, and, and in, your, in the King James uh, version of the Bible with our, our uh, church's edition of the scriptures, the heading will often say things like it does here in chapter 42, Isaiah speaks messianically. So, this is a, a signal to us that this is a very clear place where, as President Oaks had talked about, as Josh had already mentioned, that many of those writings and those prophecies can apply directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, either in his own life or even down the road at his second coming or into the millennium even, but they're, they're messianic passages. Chapter 42, notice how it starts. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles." There's a lot in that verse. 
that's directly related to the to the life and mission and everything that Jesus came to the earth to accomplish as the only begotten Son of the Father, the beloved Son. And at the at the uh, end of that passage, a few verses later, verse 9 has an interesting phrase here. Behold, the former things are come to pass, they're already done, and the new things do I declare, before they spring forth I tell you of them. This introduces some key phrases, it's kind of a leitmotif throughout these chapters there, where um, the prophet contrasts what he calls the former things with the new things. And he does this at least a half dozen times in these chapters right here. And in fact, in the whole book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 48 are the only places where this comes up. So this is a very dedicated focus there. And he uses these two paired phrases to do a few different things in these chapters. So for example, back in 41-22, he challenged the idols to explain the former things, what's happened in the past, and they can't do it, right? And he says here in 42.9, I've, I've told you the former things, and I'm about to give you some new things. And he continues several places to bring up this image. Jump ahead here. Chapter 48, verse 6. Thou hast heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things that thou didst not know them. And he's explaining in that passage that I'm going to tell you some new things that haven't happened yet so that you don't think, again, that idols brought this about. I, the Lord, told thee these things that are going to happen. And he keeps pairing new things with this announcement that Babylon is about to fall, which was a big deal. Babylon was a tremendously powerful, huge empire that had lots of armies um, and influence. And in history, it's almost amazing how quickly Babylon went down. What happens is the Persians come and take them over, and it happens very fast. And it was probably astounding for a lot of people back in the day. So he says, I'm declaring you these new things. And back in chapter 43, I'm skipping around a bit here to connect the threads. Um, he compares, again, these former things that he's told them with some new things. So in chapter 43, verse 14, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles, and the Chaldeans, who were the ethnic group in Babylon, whose cry is in the ship. So he's saying, I've taken out Babylon. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, and here what he's going to do is go back and tell the story of the Exodus. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. So this, of course, the Israelites going through the Red Sea. Who bringeth forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power, the Egyptian army, right? They shall lie down together and they shall not rise. They are extinct and they are quenched as tow. And up to this point, this was an amazing story. Of course, the Israelites always look back to that, wow, Jehovah was so amazing. He saved us at this time. And then in verse 18, he says something interesting. Remember ye not the former things, what I just told you, <laughs> neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, and shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And rivers there in the Isaiah scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls has the word paths instead, which helps make this a direct parallel back to verse 16, where with the Exodus, he made a way in the sea and a path in the waters, and in verse 19, he's now he's going to make a way in the wilderness and paths in the desert. So, you know, when he's saying, don't remember the former things, I don't think he's saying just completely forget the past, but he's also saying, 
I think you've got to stop kind of living in the past and only recalling what God has done for his people before. You need to really think about what he's doing right now in the present. And that can be a strong motivator for faith and helping us trust in what God is doing now. Um, you know, I, th I think of what's happened in church history, and as I read through the volumes of saints, I'm amazed at what the Lord has done in the past for his saints. It's very clear to me, reading those accounts of these early saints, how much the Lord was with them. But if we only think the Lord was with the people of Joseph Smith's day or Brigham Young's day, I think we're going to miss out on so much of what the Lord is doing right now. I love watching General Conference and hearing about new temples being built and the missions that are being established and seeing how the work of God continues to go forward right now. Um, and I think as much as we treasure those former things, that's not where we want to dwell. We want to think about what he's doing now. Um, I've had experiences where I think in my own life, what has the Lord done for me? And sometimes a mission story will come to mind. And I'll just tell you a little bit how old I am. My mission was quite a few years ago <laughs> now. Um, and I, it'd be very sad if I had to go back to my mission to pull out miracle stories in my own life. And I'm grateful that I've had lots of experience since then where I've seen the Lord's hand in my life. And I think one thing the prophet's challenging us to do here is consider what the Lord is doing right now. We want to treasure what's in the past, but not have that be everything that we're putting our faith in. Look and see how he's active in our lives right now and consider these new things, these wonderful new things that he's doing. I love this, this couplet that, that Josh has introduced us to that shows up repeatedly as he's already demonstrated. Isn't this what you get in general conference all the time? Isn't this what prophets, seers, and revelators do? They don't just prophesy about the future. You'll notice how often in general conference you'll hear our church leaders quoting scriptures, referring us to the past, to the former things. Why? Not just so we can pass a final exam, because thank heaven there isn't a final exam at the end of general conference, but to help us see the hand of God in the lives of these people in the past, whether it be pioneers, whether it be coming through the Red Sea on dry ground, or whether it be people in Babylonian exile, or pick your, your favorite period of the earth's history, you, if you can see the hand of God guiding them, then those people, those events, those miracles become a lens whereby we can actually see our own life. The scriptures at that point aren't just a window to the past, they become a mirror to the present and a, a lens, binoculars, a telescope into the future so that we can move forward with greater faith than ever before. At every level, past, present, and future, prophets, seers, and revelators are shoring up our faith in God to move forward on that path with the Savior walking right beside us on our journey to the presence of God, the temple, the mountain of the Lord's house. It's all, it's all beautifully contained in this, in this little uh, couplet that Josh has put up here for us. Thank you. Now, as we jump into chapter 43, we shift to one of Isaiah's other favorite. He's, he's got quite a few favorite uh, themes, doesn't he? But here's another one. The great gathering of the house of Israel comes up in chapter 43. Notice it says, verse 4, since thou was precious in my sight, by the way, if you pause there for a minute, I don't know about you, but remember when we talked about the grandeur and the greatness and the glory of God compared to the nothingness of mankind? 
and human beings on the earth. Considering that, look at that word again, or that phrase again, since thou was precious in my sight. The only thing I can compare that, that huge distance, that gap to, is an experience that I've had multiple times as a, as a new father when a child has been born, and you look at that little infant as helpless and as vulnerable as can possibly be compared to mom and dad, and you look at that little child who can quite frankly do nothing for you. The child can't repay you, the child can't take away the pain that was caused through labor and delivery from, for the mother, the child can't even express gratitude. The child can only cost you a lot of sleep and money, and yet to any parent who has held a newborn and looked into that face and, and often that, that vulnerable little, little soul straight from heaven, you would say, my heart has wrapped around this little, this little creature, if you will, and oh, how I love him or her she's precious to me. I, I see that same analogy here. As great as God is and as nothingness as, as mankind is, God loves you. He loves you because you're precious to him, not because, what he's, because of what he's going to get out of you, but because of what he's put into you. And I think that's why God keeps coming back to his covenant people not because of what they're giving to him, <laughs> but because of what he's invested into them. They're precious to him. Have you noticed? You generally value that which you sacrifice for, and the greater the sacrifice, the greater the value or the greater the love for, for that person or that thing, hence the need to avoid idol worship, because if you're not careful, you're going to put a lot of money and time and energy into things and your heart is going to be drawn to that rather than to God and to, to people around you. So, continuing verse 4, since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee, and I will bring thy seed from the east and gather them from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So this great gathering that Isaiah is going to invoke here is for the four corners, the four quarters of the earth. It's from north, south, east, west. It's not just for a little regional group of people. It's for all of God's children who are willing to listen to his voice and hearken into this gathering effort to come into the, into the house of Israel. And if I can jump ahead a little bit, Tyler, I love, you know, we've been studying a lot about the Abrahamic covenant this year in the Old Testament, and that through Israel, all the families of the earth are to be blessed. God loves this family and this covenant line, but he loves them because they're helping spread his goodness and his invitation to everybody. And you even see that, I'm going to jump to, to 45, starting in verse 20. Uh, 45 verses 20 through 25, God stop, pauses for a minute talking to Israel and he talks to the defeated Babylonians who just got their country crushed, and, and all the other Gentile nations, everyone who's not part of Israel, and he makes invitations to them 
to trust him and come to him too. He says, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together that ye, ye that are escaped or the survivors of the nations. They that have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray to unto God that can't save. So these, these people that before didn't know about Jehovah, did not worship him. Um, he invites them in verse 21. He says, I'm the Lord. There is no God beside me, a just God and a savior. There's none beside me. Verse 22, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. And in verse 23, he, he promises that unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. In verse 24, surely in the future one shall say, In the Lord, in Jehovah, I have righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified, and shall glory. Um, and I, I love this invitation there, that it's not just Israel he's trying to save. He's trying to use this event, the fall of Babylon, to say, hey, look what I did for these people, and all of you come as well. And there's other hints elsewhere in the book of Isaiah that this miraculous act that God does of saving his people from captivity and bringing them home actually produces some Gentile converts, that people see this and go, wow, this God is incredible. Let me, let me come. Um, you know, and today, as, as God works with modern Israel, I hope that we're constantly pointing out to people, look what God has done for the Latter-day Saints. Look at our history. Look at the temples being built. Look at the wonderful ways that he's blessing us and that we kind of let that light shine and let them come through that. So I, th I think it's just wonderful that he makes stops and makes that invitation here. And can I just point out here this, this idea that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear, exactly as Josh is saying, it's not just only Israelite tongues will will confess this, and only uh, Judahite knees are going to bow. No, it's every knee and every tongue. Notice what happens in the New Testament in the epistle to the Philippians. Paul picks up on this, this exact phrase from chapter 45, verse 23. Listen to this. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Did you notice that? Paul's saying it's at the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow down and confess these things. Well, you tie back here, we're speaking of the Lord Jehovah in the Old Testament, so it's this beautiful connection of Jehovah of the Old, Jesus of the New. There's no other name given under heaven. There, there's no means nor way whereby we can get back into the presence of God or become who we need to become following any of these other gods or any of these other traditions or movements. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's fun to see those, those connections of how a prophet in the New Testament is taking old things and then updating it for his audience to say, we're talking about Jesus. And that's why Lehi's, you know, says how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth. Everyone's going to know this eventually. I remember President Eyring sharing that in the spirit world, eventually all your friends, all your neighbors, they're all going to know what you know now, and they will remember whether you offered it to them. <laughs> I remember hearing that and thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> I need to do better at this, because 
you know, right now we might be nervous, we might be scared to share the gospel, but eventually everyone's going to know this, and it, it, it's wonderful to share with them what he's doing so they can receive those blessings. And if they have a polite decline right now, that's fine. They'll eventually know it and at least appreciate, you know, the, the foundation that you tried to lay earlier. So, at the end of chapter 44 in verse 28, you're, you're introduced to this, this character by name, Cyrus, who's going to be the king of Persia to overthrow Babylon very quickly, and quite quite frankly, I think most of the people who were who were captive to Babylon were very grateful to see Babylon fall. Yeah, in Jewish history, the Assyrians and the Babylonians are remembered as the bad guys, but the Persians are actually remembered as the good guys. (laughs) They're the ones who let them go from Babylon. The Persians, when they conquered, they even gave back the temple treasures that had been looted and some money to go back and rebuild. So, in biblical history, the Persians are remembered quite positively, starting with Cyrus right yeah. here. Yeah, so you'll remember that from our episode on Ezra and Nehemiah, where we talked about that that return to Jerusalem under Cyrus's direction and blessing and giving all of these things back. Uh, you'll notice chapter 45, verse 1, then the Lord now speaks to Cyrus but refers to him as the anointed, his anointed, a Mashiach, a Messiah figure, and Cyrus isn't in the house of Israel. Yeah, and I think one thing that demonstrates here, I mean, because he calls Cyrus his anointed, he calls him a servant, um, and it's not just in 45 here, there's several little bits and pieces of Cyrus, even when he's not named, that come up in these chapters, and it's clear the Lord's working through him. And I think that's a wonderful reminder that the Lord can work through people who are not necessarily in the covenant right now. Someone who you might call a Gentile, maybe today in our parlance would say is a non-member, someone like that, right? Um, The Lord is working through more people and more nations than just us to accomplish his purposes. He does have a prophet and he does have channels he works through, but the world's problems, quite frankly, are too big (laughs) for the few Latter-day Saints there are to handle. And it's wonderful to see examples like this where the Lord is clearly using others to accomplish his purposes and, and, and do the good he needs to do in the world. Powerful. Another lesson that comes up here, so he, he promises that he's going to use Cyrus, right? So 45 verses 1, um, he's going to use him to subdue nations and to, you know, throw down kings and all this, because Babylon's going to fall. But then you, there's this sense here starting in verse 9 that maybe some people among the Israelites in exile were uncomfortable with this, that they questioned the wisdom of using Cyrus, and it doesn't say why, maybe because he's a Gentile, maybe for some other reason, but then in verses 9 through 13, the prophet gives this kind of answer to people questioning God's plans here. So verse 9, woe unto him that striveth with his maker, let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth, and that the grammar is kind of convoluted there, but it's basically saying, you know, the earth is full, you're, you're just one of these many pieces of broken pottery among many. Who are you to question the one who made the pot? Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, what makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. So that the clay complaining to the potter about what he's doing. You know, the potter is the one who has the master plan here. Um, and then it continues on with uh, saying the same thing in verse 10. Verse 11 says, thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons or my children and concerning the work of my hands, command ye ye. But this is really should be a question. Like, are you going to ask me about what I do with my kids or question, are you going to command what I'm doing? I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their hosts have I commanded. Which means it's pretty presumptuous to question him. And in verse 13, he says, I have raised him, Cyrus, up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. 
He shall build my city, probably a reference to Jerusalem being rebuilt, and he shall let go my captives, not for price or reward, saith the Lord of hosts. And I think this is just such an interesting kind of rebuke to them, because how many times do we question <laughs> the Lord's plans and say, um, you know, as, as Clay saying to the potter, what do you think you're doing <laughs> right here, right? It takes tremendous trust, I think, to know that the Lord is the master builder. He's the one fashioning us. And to say, you know what, I don't get what's going on right now, and I question some of your methods, maybe, but I'm going to trust that you have a long-term plan and that you know what you're doing, and I'm, I'm going to trust that. And, and I know someday that that will make sense. And for any of you who've spent any time working with clay or, or spinning a wheel with, with making a pot, you recognize that if the clay is hardened, it's not going to be shaped or fashioned the way the potter wants it to. It'll be ruined. What a beautiful allusion back to this softening of the heart, this meekness, acknowledging who we are compared to God and giving our life over to him to say, dear God on high, you don't have to take anything away from me. President Boyd K. Packer used to use that phrase. You don't have to take anything from me because I give it all to thee freely shape me, mold me to be the instrument or the vessel that thou needs to be able to do thy work. It's a such a beautiful um, discipleship imagery for, for us on this covenant path, this complete submission of a soft heart to be molded and shaped, which might mean at times that it hurts because maybe we're going to be pulled and, and stretched in, in directions and in ways that we didn't think possible or even reasonable in the past. Until he turns this into a work of art. Exactly. Now, notice this contrast as it continues into chapter 46. We've already spent some time talking about idols, but watch the Hebrew symbolism, this poetic form that Isaiah is using here to teach a lesson with painting a picture with words rather than just saying it directly like we've already mentioned, a Greek literal way of speaking. Look at the beautiful symbolism here, starting in verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. He's doing the carrying. He's doing the bearing. And by the way, just as a side note, a, a baby has no strength to carry any idols, but God has plenty of strength to carry a baby. Now, now watch this go to the opposite end. Verse 4, and even to your old age I am he. For those of you who know how firm a foundation, verse 7 says, and e'en down to old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love and even when gray hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs shall they still in my bosom be born. It's such beautiful, uh, a beautiful sentiment here of an old man or an old woman. L look at how it continues, verse 4, even to whore hairs will I carry you, I have made, I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver. Did you, did you notice those verbs? What God will do? He'll carry, he, he's made, he'll bear, he'll carry, and he'll deliver. An, old, an aged person doesn't have the strength to carry some of those big, heavy idols. 
those gods that the world has created, but God has the power from birth all the way down to old age to carry you and to deliver you in his bosom. It's just, the imagery is so beautiful, and in my mind, Isaiah is once again begging me to not put my trust in the idols of the world, but to turn heavenward and let, let God carry me and deliver me where he wants to take me. And I think since you mentioned how firm a foundation, we got to go back to the beginning of 43, (laughs) where we get more of those lines, where he reminds us this, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. And I know some people struggle with descriptions like this because they're, they're feeling like, I, I do feel like I'm drowning, I do feel like I'm getting burned by life right now. President Nelson, you know, shared that quote and, you know, that it, the, the, the joy we have has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and it has to do with the focus of our lives. And I'll be honest, I've struggled with that a little bit. Because I, I have some relatives that struggle with mental illness. I've had um, friends, family, students, neighbors I know that are just going through some really excruciating things. Um, so sometimes I feel like, well, no, it does have something to do with the circumstances of our lives. But the more I've thought about it and the more I've seen what goes on in people's lives, I've really come to appreciate the truth of what President Nelson was trying to teach us, that um, yes, the, the, these things will hurt. But ultimately, in order to overcome them and find redemption in our suffering and ultimate joy even past them, it all depends entirely on trusting in the Savior Jesus Christ. He's the key to the comfort that we can find now. He's the key to getting relief from that in the future whenever that comes. He is our Savior, like he says, and he promises that even when we're hurting, he is right there with us. And I think that Isaiah hits that right on the spot here. Um, that no matter what's going on, he is going to make that way for us and redeem us. We have to trust, though, and wait on him like we've talked about, because for a while, sometimes it might not seem like that, and it takes a lot of trust and faith to really pull through with that. Which, by the way, I I have to just say, the greatest spiritual growth that I've experienced has, has not just come on mountain peaks of revelation. Well, that's wonderful to be sure. But some of the some of the growth, I've learned lessons that are very different down in the valley of the shadow of death phases of my life than up on the mountain peaks of Revelation portions of my life. And I think God needs us to learn all of the lessons, the lessons that can only be learned when you're ascending into that hill from on top of that summit, descending that hill, and going through these parts of life. I think the Lord has a way, a path lined out for us, and there are lessons that we need to learn every step of that way, and they're going to be different, and some of them are going to last a lot longer and be a lot harder than we ever wanted, but that's part of the lesson. It's part of the curriculum. I'd love to. If we can jump to 49, this kind of comes into play here because remember these these Israelites are in Babylon, and it really stinks. <laughs> They're not liking this. And 
So chapter 49, um, let's look at verse 4. So we're speaking to Israel, is kind of described as a servant here, and Israel over in exile is kind of speaking um, as this person. So verse 4, then I said, or, you know, collectively Israel over there in exile, then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Right, And, and they, they have this complaint, has this all been for nothing? How many times have we asked that? Am I going through all this for nothing? What's going on here? Why won't you get me out of this mess? And then in verse 5, the Lord responds, Now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And then the Lord says again in verse 6, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. And if I can paraphrase that a little bit, he's saying, it would be too light of a thing. It would be too easy of a thing just to get you guys out of trouble. You know, <laughs> he could have done that anytime. Um, he, could, he could snap his fingers, get them out of exile, set them back in a beautiful paradise back in Jerusalem, and things would be great. But he's saying, that would, that's, that's too light. That's too little of a goal right here. So look what he says in the middle of verse 6. I will also, in addition to getting you out of trouble, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. In other words, it's a turn lemons into lemonade sort of a situation. He's saying, hey guys, remember the Abrahamic covenant. You're supposed to bless all families and nations of the earth with the blessings of this gospel, right? So currently you're surrounded by Gentiles and you're in captivity. That kind of stinks. But as long as you're there, let's remember what the purpose of Israel was in the first place. Share the gospel use my redemption of you to share these things with the nations right here so that others can have salvation and come to know about me as well. Um, and I wonder how often the hard things we go through, maybe part of it is for our own growth, to be sure, and some of our the bad things we go through are our own mistakes. But can the Lord use turn those into redemptive experiences, opportunities for us to grow in maybe empathy or understanding, or to meet people we otherwise wouldn't have met, opportunities for us to share and bless other people, I think the Lord has a wonderful way of taking things that look like tragedies and turning them into triumphs, into opportunities to bless more people. And that's a wonderful message right here that these people can use and, and maybe make some sense of the hard thing that they're going through. The Lord really has a big picture in his mind, and this is all going to be part of, in the end, a wonderful redemptive story. So. The last two chapters, 48 and 49, are kind of significant or really significant, I should say, because chapter 48 has the distinct uh, characteristic of being the very first chapter from the Isaiah uh, book in the brass plates that Nephi and Lehi brought to the New World. Isaiah 48 is the first chapter that Nephi includes in his record. It shows up in 1 Nephi chapter 20, and then Isaiah 49 shows up as chapter 21. So it's fascinating, whenever we've got chapters in the Book of Mormon from Isaiah, something for you to do uh, on your own time would be to go and read them in that context and read the chapter right before and then read the chapter right after. And often you're going to learn some things from Isaiah, from Isaiah that Nephi is going to interpret for, for his purposes. He'll often introduce the Isaiah chapters, then give you those Isaiah chapters, and then tell you what some of the great takeaway lessons were for him. 
So, for instance, in this case, chapter 19 gives you a lot of setup for why he's going to read chapter uh, 48 and 49 from Isaiah, and then 2 Nephi chapter 22 gives you Nephi's prophetic commentary. And back to those old th former things and new things, it's nice to see how prophets interact with prophets and words that, that come. So, for instance, look at verse 1, the very first verse that ends up in your Book of Mormon from the book of Isaiah directly. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah. As a side note, in your Book of Mormon, in 1 Nephi chapter 20, verse 1, it then says, or out of the waters of baptism. Just so you know, that little phrase, Joseph Smith added that, it's not in the printer's manuscript, nor is it in the 1830 original printing of the Book of Mormon. There were people who apparently were confused by that, but what does it mean to come forth out of the waters of Judah? So Joseph, whose right and privilege and authority it is to interpret Scripture, added it as a parenthetical statement to a later edition, and then in the 1920 edition of the Scriptures, those parentheses were removed. So in your Book of Mormon version of this, it clarifies that coming forth out of the waters of Judah, now you see that flow of events represents coming forth out of the waters of baptism. Now, that's all setting the stage for the lesson. Those which swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. These are people who yeah, I've been I'm a I'm a member of the church. I've been baptized. I even go to my activities and my meetings. But you'll notice they're not making mention of the God of Israel, not in truth nor in righteousness. They call themselves of the holy city and they stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So, in the Ten Commandments we are told, do not take the Lord's name in vain. That means don't take a promise in God's name with empty purpose, with no purpose. So if you're going to be baptized, do it with real intent. If you're going to be participating in any ordinance, particularly the sacrament every week, do it with real intent. Sure, are we, do we fall at times? Yes. It doesn't mean that you'll, you'll never make a mistake ever again, but you're not doing it simply just to go through a routine or simply to please people in the public sphere because, look, this person showed up at church and I saw him take the sacrament. You do it with the intention that, Lord, I am here, I'm taking your name upon myself with the intention of trying to be more like you, even though I struggle and fall at times. And what he's saying here is that there are people who, for whatever reason, took the Lord's name upon themselves with no intent, with zero intent, with empty intent, with no good purpose. And that is taking the Lord's name in vain. So, as we continue through the rest of this, these two chapters, you get this, once again, a gathering motif coming full, full circle for us again, and often Jerusalem or the kingdom of Judah will be embodied symbolically in the form of a woman or a mother who is sitting down desolate, um, her children have been taken from her, and she feels like she's totally been forsaken of the Lord, and all of a sudden, in the distance, she sees a group of people coming, and she doesn't recognize many of them. And the, the way Isaiah plays this out, it's beautiful. Here's Jerusalem embodied as a, a symbolic woman, 
watching this group come, and if you go over to chapter 49, look at how these children respond to her. Um, let's start in verse 19. For thy waste and thy desolate places in the land of thy destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants, and they that swallowed thee up shall be far away. So your conquerors are going to be far away, and your land that used to be with your people totally filled with all of your children, it, it tells you it's too narrow, it's too constricted. There are so many more people coming in than what you lost, and it goes on, verse 20, the children which thou shalt have after thou hast lost the other shall say again in thine ears, the place is too straight for me, give place to me that I may dwell. And verse 23. So it's going to be better than it ever has been before. Exactly. And verse 23, the kings shall be thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers. Such a beautiful imagery of these Persians bringing the children of Israel back to Jerusalem and bringing them back in, in big numbers. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned that Nephi quotes these chapters and then comments them in 22, and you know, uh, Isaiah 49, 23 is one of his favorite scriptures. Nephi likens this to the last days. He talks about the descendants of Lehi in the last days, how they kind of like the Jews in Babylon, have been through apostasy, they've been through a hard times, they've been scattered and smitten by mean Gentiles, you have kind of beat them up like the Babylonians had done to the Jews. And then Nephi seems to compare these Persians, the good Gentiles who are helping out these exile people in exile, to people in the last days, these good Gentiles who bring Lehi's descendants, the Book of Mormon, the restored gospel, uh, and, and help them out. So this can, you know, in a physical sense in the ancient world, you know, Persians helping people go home, but in the latter-day context, Nephi wants us to see missionaries that bring the gospel, that provide this, this wonderful nourishment that are helping them there, and that's something we can all participate in as we do the gathering of Israel. On both sides of the veil, I mm -hmm. think we could add here as well, everything that, that we're reading in the, these Isaiah chapters could absolutely apply to the gathering of the house of Israel on that side of the veil as well, all of our temple and family history efforts. I love how he concludes this in verses 24, 25, and 26, that it's the oppression that we all experience from Satan and his forces, our bad habits, whatever it might be, we will all be delivered by God if we choose to turn to him. Verse 25, thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away. That's all of us. We've all been captive by things that keep us away from God. God is sending forth his gospel to save all of us. We all could be saved through his truths. It goes on. Um, and the prey of the terrible should be delivered, for I will contend with him that contend with thee, and I will save thy children. So we see that going on right now. The spreading forth of the restored gospel is to deliver the captives. People have been captive in ignorance or a lack of knowledge of the gospel or not familiar with God's ordinances or his saving grace that we can receive through temple ordinances. These verses speak to me about what God is doing right now for all of us if we have ears to hear and hearts to act on what he's asked us to do. So, to conclude this episode today, we want to end kind of full circle where we began with comfort. And by the way, if we're talking about comfort, the only time that comfort really means anything to us is if we've been in affliction or sickness or exile of some sort or another. 
because if life is easy, if it's pain-free, if everything's total success, everything we try to do, then comfort means, that word means nothing to us. Um, so keep in mind as you move forward on this covenant path, though we don't love the troughs of the path like we love the mountain peaks of the path, those troughs allow the mountain peaks to be all the more comforting and all the more powerful as connecting points with us in, in heaven. Start in verse uh, <clears throat> chapter 49, verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. I just, I love that intro to this, this little uh, set of verses that we're going to going to end with. Verse 14 says, But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. And then Isaiah asks a fascinating question. You can almost picture this great seer sitting there thinking, okay, what, what image could I use to communicate how God can't forsake them? And he's probably thinking, okay, what is the most needy human relationship that I can think of, the, the most dependent relationship of all? It'd be a newborn baby. So he uses this symbol. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Now, most of you watching and hearing Isaiah's rhetorical question here would think, no, a woman could never forget her newborn child, and yet throughout the history of time and in Isaiah's time, you're going to notice he gives a different answer than what your, your knee-jerk response was. He says, yay, they actually might forget, yet will I not forget thee? So he took this most needy relationship you could possibly imagine and he says, even that will sometimes break down. And I think it's powerful that he chooses the love of a mother as, you know, you'd think that this, nothing would ever <laughs> stop this because we all know how much moms advocate for their kids and fight for their kids and, and um, want to help their kids so bad. And yet even then you have extreme cases where you have bad moms. It's still possible for a mom to, to flake out and fail. But even in those extreme cases where they fail, the Lord is not one of those cases. Nothing will ever make him forget us. That's such a powerful image that his devotion for us is even more than the love for a mom, which is quite incredible <laughs> when we know how many great moms there are. It's beautiful. And so then he gives us this, this evidence or this, this rationale for why he will never forsake you. Verse 16, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. He's saying, I, I can't forget you. I can't forsake you. I've engraven you upon the palms of my hands. Th this is one of the sweetest images I can think of, of the greatness and the grandeur of God compared to my own nothingness in comparison, and yet somehow, some way, he still loves me. I'm precious to him. You're precious to him. With all of our sins, 
all of our iniquities, all of our rebellions, all of our personal scatterings, all of our own exiles were still precious to him to the point where he can't forget you. We're engraven on the palms of his hands. So on that note, to finish, let's, let's go back once, once again to verse 18. Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe, clothe thee with them all, as with an ornament, and bind them on thee as a bride doeth." This, this great clothing, this in, endowment of power from heaven, this, this covering, this kafar, it's, it's everywhere in the Old Testament and in the Gospel, but more important than having it be in the Scriptures and in the Gospel is having it be in your life and in your heart. Just know that you are loved by he who has infinite capacity to love. Remember, that which you sacrifice for then gives you the ability to love. What did Jesus sacrifice for you? Is it any wonder that his love for you is infinite based on the infinite sacrifice that he performed for you? And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved.